Welcome listeners to Sleep, Eat, Perform and Repeat. This is a podcast on high performance. It will be presented by myself, David Clancy, and my two co-hosts, Connor Gavin and Kieran Dunn. What we're striving to achieve here is figure out what makes high-performing individuals tick, why they do what they do, and why are they successful. Rate and review, share with your friends, but most importantly, enjoy. Welcome everyone to Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat, episode number 35. Today we spoke to Damon Hughes, Manchester-born change management catalyst, professor of organizational psychology and change, and best-selling author of books including The Barcelona Way, The Winning Mindset, What Sport Can Teach Us About Great Leadership, How to Think Like Sir Alex Ferguson, The Business of Winning and Managing Success, and Liquid Thinking. Damon sheds light on his very successful background in business, education, sporting elite environments, high-performance culture, and change management. We asked incisive questions and got incisive and constructive responses. This is a real gem for people in high-performance settings and one of our best episodes to date. If you'd like more information on this episode or other episodes of the podcast, look on social media or on our website, www.sleepyperformrepeat.com. Please subscribe, share, rate and review, but most importantly, listen and enjoy. Hi guys, welcome to another episode of Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat. I'm joined on the line and in the office here with David, with Professor and Author Damien Hughes, contacts from the UK. So let's hand over to David now to give an introduction to Damien. So Professor Hughes combines a lot of practical academic background in a lot of different fields, such as sport, organisation, change, psychology. He's worked a lot in business, education and very much sporting elite environments and written a lot on high performance culture. And essentially, that's why myself and Kiran reached out to Damien in the first place, because we've read his books. I've read The Barcelona Way. I've looked into his liquid thinking, winning mindset, and how to think like Sir Alex. And we're both Manchester United supporters. So we thought, what better a man to bring on to teach us and who we could learn a little bit from. So Damien, would you like to just tell our listeners a little bit as to how you came to where you are today in your life. Yeah, of course. Well, first of all, thanks for inviting me on. Uh, it is a real honour. I know it's a it's a great podcast, and I enjoy listening to it. So to be invited on is a is a real privilege. Thank you. Um, in terms of my background, uh, I'm a, I'm from Manchester, and uh, I um, I grew up in a boxing gym essentially. So my dad was a boxing coach. So um, in uh, the north uh, of Manchester, he set up a boxing club. Uh, back in the 1960s. So I grew up, that was my playground uh, all the way through my childhood and then adolescence. So he was working with uh, guys that went right the way through from kids stepping in off the street to then ended up becoming some guys Olympic, British and uh, world boxing champions. So I was around that kind of environment uh, from a really young age. And uh, my dad was sort of savvy enough to realise that he said to me, um, he, uh, I, well, he saw me box and then said, you better go down the academic route. So, uh, <laughs> You're going to get knocked out uh, too much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, I ended up um, pursuing um, um, organisational psychology is really my passion. So I went to night school and, uh, and, and, and then went through to get my professorship going down that route. So I've always been very interested in terms of 
cultures and organizational psychology and building sort of team psychology so it's robust enough so that was really my interest then i went into um the corporate world for a few years because uh, I thought I was obliged to get a real job uh, and I did that for a few years and, and sort of took some of those same principles within industry and then uh, about 15 years ago I wrote my first book uh, the one that you referenced there David uh, Liquid Thinking yeah. and the idea behind it was just to take some really simple principles around change management and yeah. share them uh, in, a, in what I hoped was an accessible way for people that wouldn't necessarily want to pick up a book uh, and read about that topic, but hopefully just try and get into it. So I interviewed people like Richard Branson, uh, went and interviewed Muhammad Ali out in Atlanta, uh, people like that, and just spoke to them very much around the psychology of how they'd done what they'd done. Yeah, I've just sort of pursued that, that line since. So I've been lucky enough to work with some great coaches in the years since and support some uh, uh, some teams to just try and share some of the insights of what goes on in a, in both elite sport and elite business with people that might want to uh, adopt those principles in, in their own situation. So I, I've obviously read on the back of the Barcelona way that James Kerr, the author of Legacy, another book I really like and pretty fond of, yeah. um, obviously you're probably friends with him and he, he came across one of his principles in his kind of 15 lessons on leadership when he said it's, you know, invent a language, sing your world yep. into existence. And I'd like you to tell the listeners and ourselves a little bit about the language of culture, because you've come up with liquid thinking, which sounds kind of abstract. You've come up with an acronym BARSA that fed into the Barcelona way. So how did you manage to come up and construct this kind of language to help people understand where culture can be a competitive advantage in work and in sport? Yeah, great. Well, it's a, it, so it's a great question, but what I wanted to do was um, give people almost like a bit of a mental inventory, so mm. a checklist of how they can do it. So I'm really sceptical of anyone that tells you there's a formula that if you follow this formula, you will be successful because yeah. that doesn't take into account context and individual challenges and things like that. But I do think that almost like, the idea of having a mental inventory, a shopping list, if you will, in your head that, that you can almost run through is, um, is always a, a, a useful concept. So the idea of uh, BASA was, I, so I use that as the acronym for, uh, for cultural change and helping people to understand what are the principles of a high-performing culture. So if things aren't going well, you can almost run through it and go, right, okay, do we have really clearly defined behaviours in place? Do we have the resilience to take people across the arc of change? What are we doing better than anything else in terms of repeated practices? So it almost becomes a bit of a checklist that allows you just to go back and do your own analysis rather than feel that there's a set formula that can be applicable to everybody. Yeah, but there's an interesting story. The idea of liquid thinking... Yeah, I'll tell you this one because when I uh, was first trying to think of a, uh, of, a of a catchy title uh, for the first book, mm. I, um, I, um, I run the real reason behind this as a multiple choice quiz. So I'll let you decide which one you think is most uh, is most real. The first idea was that um, Edward de Bono, who's um, uh, uh, an expert on creativity, yeah. estimates that. Uh, 80% of our mistakes that we make in life is through solid thinking. So the idea that we get too 
fixed on our idea or too fixed on how things should be. Um, so I thought the opposite of that would be liquid thinking about having that, that flexibility of thought. So that's one option. The second option is I was sat in a bar with my mate having a pint and we were trying to think of catchy names for uh, the book. So uh, <laughs> I'll allow you to make your judgment on what you think was the most viable. But, uh, it's got to be the laugher there, my friend. <laughs> definitely. Yeah, ironically, it was, yeah, but then they invented the second reason, uh, the, the Edward de Bono reason to make it seem as if there was a modicum of intelligence being applied to it. I sure we're we're both facing points here in front of us at the table here. So <laughs> very good, very good. Um, I want to ask you a, a question that we have somebody coming on this from New Zealand actually next week. I reached out to somebody who works for a team called the Chiefs in Waikato. Oh yeah, brilliant. Yeah, yeah. And he's a fellow by the name of Michael Collins. Actually, the same name as a very famous Irish Republican leader. I was going to say, yeah, yeah. That'll be opposite. <laughs> but, but he came up with a great question, and I want to ask you. Uh, tribal identity, a unique style of play, something I'd say would be synonymous for Barcelona, right? Where players and yeah. coaches have had to adapt to that style. And if they didn't meet that style, you know, Cruyff style and uh, up through La Masia, that players such as Ronaldinho, Deco... Might, it mightn't work for them. Thierry Henry, Zlatan, and they had to leave. So like, as a leader, yeah. where can one draw the strength to make big calls to really bed in that desired high-performance environment or culture? And how do you bring everyone on board? How do you bring the community, the board, the stakeholders onto that path that you feel is really what you want to build? Yeah, it's a brilliant question. And, um, and, and, and that's where that mental checklist is, is quite useful. So the way that I would often advocate um, anyone starting this, if they, if, if they want to make culture a competitive advantage, is start with this idea of identity. What do you want to stand for? So some of that is around the sense of purpose, but then some of it is about what does that look like? And then the third question is, how, uh, so how do you get there? And it's that bit about how do you get there that is really defines culture. So a nice way that I'd advocate anyone doing this is um, I uh, use the phrase success leaves clues. So don't try to create something in a vacuum where you say, oh, we would like to do that. Go and look for concrete evidence of when you've been successful, what does success look like? So how do you define it? So when, and, and then break it down into tangible behaviours, because that way it becomes something that, that my definition of a great team is that the difference between your best day and your worst day is narrower than everybody else's. Yeah. So when things don't go right, you can fix it a lot quicker because you understand what you're like when you're at your best. And the easiest way of identifying that is through those behaviours. So what Barcelona did in their case was when the things started to drift for them <clears throat> away from um, a, 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 away from what they felt the talent could offer, they did an analysis that was similar to success leaves close and said, when we've been good, why are we good? And what they found was there was three behaviours that underpinned pretty much everything that they did. So the first one was this idea of humility. So they said it's not about people swaggering in and showing off their bling or their wealth or their status or prestige. It's about, because if you feel the need to do that, there's a good chance you lack humility. If you lack humility, you lack the ability to listen. 
If you can't listen, you can't learn. If you can't learn, you can't improve. So it's almost like you're coasting on, um, on, on what we already know you can do. The second behaviour that they identified was hard work. They said so when they'd been successful, they had people that weren't just coming in and training, they were staying behind, they were doing extras, they were looking to uh, improve in a variety of different ways. So hard work uh, was endemic. And then the third one was that if there is ever a clash between what might be right for you as an individual but what might be right for the team, choose the team option pretty much every time. So a great example they had uh, that illustrated that was that they had a cater, the Malian midfielder. Yeah, yeah. When they got to the 2009 final against Manchester United, uh, they had an injury crisis at the back and uh, Guardiola told Cater that he was going to be playing, but told him that he would play as a fullback. And Cater went to Guardiola and said, don't pick me. There's better options than me at fullback, and you picking me there might damage the team. Now, he went and did that knowing that if he didn't agree to play in that position, he wouldn't play at all in the Champions League final. But Guardiola often cites that as almost like the gold plated standard of Selfless. putting the team first. Yeah. And that selflessness. So, what you find is that in any high performing team, these behaviours are really transparent so you're telling people very clearly this is what you're expected to behave like and then what you're also doing is then applying those standards consistently so when we talk about players that don't fit in you if you are omitting players if you're getting rid of players based on those behaviors there's almost like a natural justice people will accept that as a decision so there was a great quote that when I was doing the research that Cheeky Bagheerestein, who um, was the director of football at Barcelona, he now does the same role at Manchester City, gave me, where he said, your talent will get you as far as the dressing room door. Your behaviours determine if we will keep you there. Mm. So his point was that talent is almost just a prerequisite. You've got to be good that we would consider allowing you in. But that's not enough. It's how you conduct yourself in alignment with that talent that will determine whether the culture is a healthy one or not. Excellent. Brilliant. Brilliant. There's just two points that I'd, uh, questions that I'd like to ask based on that. And the first one is obviously in elite sport and the higher you go, a lot of the time um, it's a very fickle industry and things like that. So it's easier to get rid of these elements or these cogs in the wheels that aren't really, you know, honing in on the culture and things. But in business sense, that's yeah. very difficult. So what advice would you give to a business manager who is facing into a cultural shift or change management and doesn't necessarily have the power to wield the axe for certain people who aren't getting involved in it? What sort of strategies would you ask them to employ? Yeah. I think that's a really brilliant question, Cameron, because um, I think that is because what you're highlighting there is a, is, a, is a big flaw when people try and use the sports metaphor within business because... Uh, I often think that metaphor falls down on um, on two things. The first one is you can get rid of people a lot easier within a sporting environment than what business allows. You know, employment law, quite rightly, doesn't allow that. The second factor as well is that bullying behaviours can, can go on in a sporting environment that are excused as being part of the game. So if you've got a problem with somebody, you've got the opportunity to physically smash them in training and legitimise it and go, oh, you know, it was just a bad tackle. Yeah. That again, quite rightly, wouldn't happen in, uh, in an office. Yeah. So, so those two differences 
mean that a lot of sports metaphors, when they're used for business, I think often fail to um, fail to to understand that. I think the bit that is most interesting, though, is is and, and and I often say this when I work with businesses that if you're talking about people that happen to work in sport, there is some common ground there because we're talking about uh, just the people element of it. Yeah. So in answer to the question of like you say, this idea of getting rid of people from a sports team and just moving them on. I think the equivalent of it is that it's not about physically moving people on, but it's about how you give them your time and attention. So to use another example, you imagine an organisation that has uh, the challenge that it can't just get rid of people, say somewhere like the prison service. So if you've got a dysfunctional prisoner that's causing a whole heap of different trouble within the uh, the main population. What's the ultimate deterrent that they use with a dysfunctional prisoner? The answer is they put them into solitary confinement. So what they do is they take them out of that main population and say, you carry on behaving in the way you want to, but you're not going to have the oxygen of an audience to fuel that behavior. And then what that does is it, it, it presents the dysfunctional prisoner with a choice. You either assimilate your behaviors to fit back into the group or you remain in that isolated state, which is almost like a psychological death for them. So they're presented with a choice. So what I would say for anyone listening from a business point of view is that don't always respond to your cynics in the organisation. So if you've got people that are being dysfunctional and things like that, deal with them with the processes that you have in place to deal with dysfunctional people. But don't keep dancing to their tune. Don't keep responding to their complaints. Don't keep running every time that they have something cynical to uh, to offer because you're giving them the oxygen and publicity focus on the people that are demonstrating the behaviors the people that are buying into it you know reward them recognize them give them the opportunities rather than allow your cynics to set the tone for uh, uh, for, for how you respond excellent and, and damon i just want to build on that a little bit oftentimes when t- when we talk about high-performing teams, so let's reference the All Blacks or the Crusaders or somebody like that or Leinster yeah. Rugby, who are obviously at the pinnacle of their game, but yet are always finding ways to challenge and bring about collisions in their environment so that they keep on getting better and they keep evolving even when they're at the top. Like How, yeah. how important, in your opinion, is diversity of thought in those teams or like can it be a complicating factor? You know, if three or four people pe- people come in and say, this is how we can raise the bar further. No, this is how we can raise the bar further. You know, can that complicate yeah, things? Yeah, yeah. No, I think I, I, I think that goes back to that to that point we spoke about earlier, David, around humility, having the humility to realise that you don't have all the answers, so being prepared to listen to others. Yeah. I remember hearing Alex Ferguson many years ago describe Brian Giggs in that way. He said, he said he's got an open mind that he'll listen to anybody if he feels they can improve them but then he also said but he's also got a built-in bullshit detector uh-huh. to quickly weed out anything that he doesn't feel uh, is relevant so i think having that humility to come in and say how do, uh, like how do we get better how do we improve is key and then having that willingness to listen from even the most diverse people is really really important i think what those organisations you've just said, like Leinster or the Crusaders or the All Blacks or anywhere else that uh, that does that, I think the thing that they're really good at doing that 
say average organizations don't it's, they don't go in for gimmickery yeah. so yeah. i go so a lot uh, this is a real bugbear of mine in organizations especially in sports ones that go in for like the latest gimmick and you go if it's just so i'll give you an example that after james book the legacy book i meet lots of um coaches to go oh yeah we sweep the sheds and you go okay why is that and they go well we read that new zealand sweep the sheds after a game and you go yeah i know why new zealand sweep the sheds i'm asking why do you do it because if you're telling me you do it just because new zealand do that's not a cultural model that's just the gimmick you're just copying what somebody else has done now new zealand do it because it it breeds humility it's this idea of not letting of not getting yourself carried away so i understand why it's relevant in their world but if you're only telling me you do it because you've seen somebody else do, that's a gimmick. And that means that the first thing that you'll dispense of when things don't go well is that gimmick. So I always think that any new ideas that come into an organisation to improve it have to be clearly aligned with the purpose of the organisation. You have to be able to explain it and explain why it's better than what you're doing today. Mm. And so it's a brilliant point that you make around having that diverse range of thinking is really important but then it's equally important to be critical in the way of understanding what does this offer us rather than just doing it because it's new and therefore it's different. Now I'd like, I'd like to sh- just one last thing, then we'll go back to Kieran. I'd like to share a little story. I, I attended a what? conference yesterday called the Curiosity Conference, of all things. Oh, wow. It was very, yeah. very interesting in, in Dublin. And there was a woman called Elena Benari, who from Winnipeg and she gave a presentation and she started it with saying NASA are trying to hire it's not a joke are trying to hire complex decision makers and complex problem solvers and people that are really astute for communication and humble team builders okay and she said but NASA find it hard to find these sort of people they're finding it difficult because People that have those skills are kindergartners, two-year-olds, three-year-olds that play with toys. And oftentimes you're finding it hard to find those people later in life who are good at solving problems because they've forgotten how to play with toys and build things and solve problems. So she came up with this, this what I thought was a gimmick, but I thought it was brilliant. And it, it was yeah. a, a toy called an empathy toy, right? And you should have a look yeah, at it. On. I've sent it to a couple of people today. And what she did was she's saying it's all about how for her, the most important thing for culture and bringing about that sort of change is having everyone understand empathy. So she had two people go up in front of 200 people and they were blindfolded. And this toy was one person had the toy in a certain arrangement and then had to communicate blindfolded to the second person also blindfolded how to construct the toy in the same way. And it, it was so interesting because it was all about how you communicate, how you actively listen, um, how they were trying to keep it cool and not get pissed off and like throw the toy out, you know, throw yeah. the toy across the stage. And I thought it was, it was brilliant. And it's really, she said, catching fire in the States. I was just wondering, it's not something you hear about when you talk about culture, empathy. You know, I'd never really thought about it a whole lot, but coming in yesterday, it was kind of, I wanted to talk to you about it. I did a book a a few years ago called The The Winning Mindset. And I went and interviewed a whole heap of different coaches. And 
One of the guys I went to interview was a man called Manny Stewart, who um, was like Thomas Hearns' coach. He, he then coached Lennox Lewis when he was the heavyweight champion of the world. And um, I went to his gym in Detroit. It's a famous gym called the Cronk Gym. Yeah. And I'll be honest, I was I was pretty nervous as I approached it because I mean, it was downtown Detroit. It wasn't in the best of areas. Uh, and the whole experience was just a little bit intimidating. But when I got there, I met uh, Manny Stewart and uh, he went, Damien, he said, how are you doing? So I said, no, it's great to be here, Manny. And I, I thought he was being polite, so I gave him a polite answer. I said, it's a real pleasure to be here. He said, that's really kind. He said, he said now do you mind telling me the truth? He said, how do you really feel? <laughs> and the next thing was, I found myself babbling away, saying, telling him how nervous I was and how I didn't want to waste his time and I knew he was busy and I was conscious that I was imposing on him and things like that. And as I was babbling, he said to me, thanks for being honest with me. He said, me and you are going to do some really good work together. He said, you come with me. And when I got to know him a bit better, I said to him, I said, what did you do that first morning we met? He said, what do you mean? I said, well, why did you ask me the the, uh, the second question and he said I always ask the second question he said the second question is when you actually start doing your work with somebody and I said this is an intriguing answer I said what do you mean by that he said well he said let me describe what I saw when you walked up those stairs that first morning we met he said you're a white English guy coming into an all-black neighborhood hmm. he said you looked a little bit nervous he said I must say he said so my first question how do you really feel or when I asked you how do you feel the first answer that you gave me about how excited you were to be here leads me to one or two conclusions. He said, I concluded that you're either a liar or you're a sociopath. <laughs> he said, so my second question <laughs> moves the conversation on a bit quicker. So when I said, how do you really feel? He said, the answer that you gave me then told me that you were telling lies. He said, but I also made the conclusion that you were telling lies to be polite. So he said, so I figured we can work together because you're probably a decent enough bloke. Now, his point was, he said, I ask every child that comes into my world that same question, the second question. He said, because I make the assumption that if you're a child coming in here, you feel a little bit nervous, you may be being bullied at school, you may feel a bit intimidated, overawed, or a little bit frightened. Now, he got, had this great line. He said, I believe I've got millions of dollars of advice to pass on to you, but I can't pass it on if those feelings are clouding your judgment. Now, he summed up his approach, and it sounds like this, uh, so this lady from Winnipeg you were describing yesterday, but he describes it, it summed up his, his approach as, I work on the basis that if we're going to work together, we need to contain, then explain. So it's not the idea of going straight into the coaching session. It's about creating an environment where you feel cared for, you feel that you belong, you feel that I'm interested in you, that I'm invested in your success. And all those points that you're describing about empathy and just emotional intelligence, and once you're convinced that you're safe within that environment, in other words, contained, then you can start to coach. Then you can start to improve and get better. And this has been a huge learning for me over the years that we, it, it often gets dismissed as like soft skills or people assuming, oh, is that doing group hugs or is that just doing high fives? And the reality is it, it's about creating an environment of emotional intelligence and treating people with respect and courtesy and decency and things like that is such an important characteristic within then going to create high-performing cultures. Brilliant. Very good. Um, just going back to what you mentioned before and about the sweep the sheds, I think that's been wide-ranging and actually much more far-reaching than people understand. I've seen it in sport. I think David has seen it as well. And I know you've worked with Warrington before, Warrington Wolves, and been quite successful there. And I enjoyed the story you told about how you got the players to identify 
how they were perceived and which way they felt about themselves and how you sort of tapped into that. So just for the amateur and professional coaches where that are listening in the UK or across stateside, um, just yeah. how would you develop that or how would you go about setting that in motion from a coach's perspective? I do this with some of the teams that I've been lucky enough to work with. And the example you mentioned in uh, in rugby league was just one of the examples where what we did with the players was we got them to uh, imagine their opposition coach doing a team talk about them. So we said, what are they saying about you in the days leading up to the game? Now, we say, don't worry about the tactics because they've already got a plan in place that they think they're going to beat you. What are they describing you like as a group of blokes? And what you find is players are often really quite self-aware in that situation. So, the, so they'll do a mix. But if they're doing it from the opposition coach, they'll do a mix of good and bad things. Mm-hmm. So they'll say things like, oh, you know, they're good for the first 20 minutes, but then they'll blow themselves out. Or, you know, they're a bit emotional, like they're a bit mentally fragile if they go a few points behind. So they do um, a, fairly, uh, a fairly accurate appraisal of themselves. The question I always ask then is, are you happy with that as a perception? And what you'll find is a lot of players will go, no, no, of course we're not. We feel we're better than that description. So then I get them to uh, imagine their best game. So I get them to talk about the best game they've had. So not to make one up, but think about their best performance that they will have had in the fairly recent past. And then I get them to say, what was the coach saying about you after that game? And then obviously, if they've played really well and maybe they've had a good result as well, the language is often a lot more positive. But what I get them to identify on the basis of that are the behaviours that that emanate from it. So that phrase I I, I used earlier about Barcelona, I talk about this idea of trademark behaviours. What are the behaviours that defined you when you were at your very best? And once you get them nailed down, the challenge then is how do we integrate them into our culture? So how do we marry them up with your talent so that you deliver that consistency of performance? So I'll give you an example that what we did um, in that one that you mentioned there at Warrington, mm. and I feel I can talk about this because without betraying confidences, because it was um, 10 years ago now. Yeah. What we did with the players there was they hadn't won anything for 30 odd years. So as a club, they'd, they'd underperformed for a long time. So we got them to identify. So we did that exercise I just described, and we got three behaviours that we identified as in terms of it was things like resilient, sensible, hard work, and sticking together. So once we got them as behaviours, we got players to do an individual appraisal of themselves to rate themselves out of ten for those uh, for those criteria. Yeah. Now that's a really good example because you'll find those that are low on confidence will score themselves uh, down. And then you'll find those who are a little bit deluded will give themselves ridiculous marks, which was exactly what we got. And then what we did was we got the players to score each other to do an assessment of themselves out of 10. Now, it was brilliant because because in that situation, there was a couple of guys that were pretty toxic to the culture in terms of some of the practices that they'd been doing. But unfortunately, they were also some of the better players. So... Players maybe felt a bit reluctant to give them face-to-face feedback, but when they knew there was a safe a safe method of doing it, they were prepared to be really honest. So there was one example of one guy that rated himself as 9 out of 10, but his uh, average score from his teammates was 3. Yeah. So it, then it became incumbent on me. To, and not only did they give him a score, they gave some really specific examples of his behaviour, of why they'd rated him down. And then what that, what that 
presents the question to with that particular athlete is you have a choice. You either choose to adapt your behavior to assimilate yourself back into the group or you find yourself becoming increasingly isolated. So you have a choice there of, uh, of, of how you choose to respond. The second thing that really comes out of that as an exercise, though, that can be really valuable is you find out. So one of the phases that I talk about when, in terms of uh, driving for a high-performance culture is this phase of you need cultural architects. You need people within that dressing room that really identify with what you're trying to do mm. and that will hold others to account for it. Um, and now, cultural architects emerge via one of two criteria, social or technical. So they're either the best players or they're charismatic characters that people listen to. Mm -hmm. So when you do this scoring system, you almost find out who are the ones that the rest of the dressing room respects more than anyone else. And then you can go and work with those. You look, you're, traditionally, in, a, in any dressing room, you'll get about four or five guys that will emerge as these architects. And they're the ones that, if you want to accelerate the process, go and invest your time with them very quickly because they were the ones that... So Clive Woodward used to make that phrase that um, the culture is what happens when you're not in the room as the leader. So your cultural architects are the ones that are in the room when you're not, and they're the ones that will hold people to account. So I've done that, and I tend to use that as a methodology when I work with teams, just because it allows us to speed up the process. And, the, and you also get um, like a mandate for your cultural architects to go and actually start holding people to account. Yeah. Because I think one thing that happens a lot in sport is people try and learn off the best, the big, the best cultures, and they implement things like I, I liked what Warrington did about not going onto the pitch in the second half until they're grouped together, and that was actually yes. not not just because it was creating an image, but it was deep seated in the fact that they were they had a, a value that they never left anyone behind, and I think a lot of the time, yeah, exactly, yeah, I think exactly, about, and I think that's a really good point, Kieran, and, and I'm sorry to interrupt you, no but that goes back to the idea of it wasn't a gimmick. So one exactly. of our trademark behaviours was we stick together. So the players, so we said, how, how can we symbolise that in our behaviours? And they came up with the idea that we, exactly like you say, that we walk onto the field as a pack at half time. We don't all run off individually. We run to the halfway line and we run off the field together as a group. So it wasn't just the gimmick of doing that for... For, for the sake of doing it, we did it because it linked to one of our trademark behaviours, which was we would always stick together. Yeah, and that link is the most, probably the vital part of it all. Brilliant. Um, yeah. Just moving on, in terms of, you'd have, you have a huge storied career working with very high-profile individuals and stuff. Who is the best leader that Professor Damien Hughes has worked with? Oh, wow, that's a good one. There you go. Um, yeah, um, I'm going to be biased here, and but I'll explain some context behind it. Uh, so I'm going to talk about uh, my dad. Uh, so my dad, as I said to you in the introduction, was a boxing coach. Yeah. Um, so he, so he set up this uh, the boxing gym in the north of Manchester. Now to give you some context of it, it was classed as Europe's third poorest district. It, I mean, it still is. So it still has a lot of so social deprivation and issues associated with that. But he, um, so he came from that area, but what he was keen to do was that he went and sort of put himself through a scholarship of going working with elite, elite trainers. So people like Angelo Dundee, people like Manny Stewart I mentioned earlier, 
people like that. He went and did his apprenticeship uh, with them and became sort of friends and peers with them over the years. And then he took a lot of that principles and he brought it back um, to English boxing. So he was a he was a really strong advocate that boxing was about the art of not getting hit. So it was about defence and it was about teaching his fighters um, about that art of defence. So he went and did that and then, like I say, he, he had quite notable success over the years with, with, with a lot of different fighters. I suppose part of the reason I mention it is because obviously I'm biased that I got a first-hand glimpse of it, but it was the it was the environment and the decency and the humility that he adopted to it. So everybody got treated like a superstar, regardless of their ability. So everybody was treated the same. And, and it was about teaching people about respect and about treating people with, with honesty and, 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 and being inherently decent was the essence of, um, of all the work that he did. So there was, I mean, my dad's quite poorly now, with dementia, but last year Manchester Council named a road after him um, in the area that he grew up in, in in tribute to the work that he'd done. And we had a few hundred people turn up, people that had just heard about it, that had almost come under his um, uh, his wing over the 40 years that he'd done it, people that had never gone on to do anything in the sport, but felt like the lessons and the influence that he brought to bear on them had served them well in different parts of their life, regardless whether it was about just being a good dad or just going on and developing a career in other ways. So I suppose measuring it in terms of the impact on, on, um, on other people's lives, so not just about sporting achievements, but the wider context. I'll be biased and uh, I'll throw my dad in the mix if that's all right. That's brilliant. That's the best answer you probably could have asked for. It's brilliant. Yeah, thank you. And I think it's only fitting now that we come on with some of our kind of questions we tend to ask a lot of our guests on this, Damien. But I'd like to start with, um, because you've opened up there and you've showed, you know, a little bit of trust and, you know, like what Daniel Coyle talked about, vulnerability, we've touched on emotional intelligence and all those sort of things. I'm going to take one of the questions that he had in his book. And if a crystal ball could tell you a truth about yourself or your life or your future, what would you want to know from that crystal ball? Uh, wow, that's a brilliant question. I think it'd be something around the idea of um, the difference that you can make. So, so give you an example about writing a book is a bit of a strange experience because because you live with it for a number of years and 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 you become increasingly fond of it, but then. It's like sending a child out into the world, but you never hear about what happens with it after that. Mm. So sometimes I did, you know, I love hearing not from sort of a big headed or, or, or a vain perspective, but I love hearing people come back and say, you know what, I read this idea in the book and this is how I've done, uh, or like, this is how I've implemented it and this was the result of it. So I suppose sometimes that can feel really heartening, but also encouraging to carry on sort of doing this role of, um, of, of, of investigating some of these ideas and trying to share them widely. So I suppose it'd be that, it'd be that idea of understanding that ripple effect of, of, of how some of those ideas have been implemented to, uh, to help other people. That'd be a really satisfying thing to find out. Well, yeah. well, you've obviously made an impact on the two of us here because we 
we wanted to get you on board because obviously what you've written drew and piqued our interest. So, yeah, well, thank you, and I, and, and, and I'd say I am genuinely humbled that you've shared that um, and and that you've invited me on as well. So, thank you. So, um, if you could give us both here in Dublin and our family members yep. a life lesson from stuff that you've learned, be it from personal or professional. What kind of life lesson you give the two of us to, to adopt from today? Yeah, um, really simple. Two words: just be kind. Oh, that was two words. The just bit, but but be kind <laughs> is uh, is um, it, is is something that I've learned in so many different environments um, about. Just be kind to both yourself first of all. That often we can be our worst critic and we can give ourselves a bit of a kick in. Often when we're trying our best, but. You know, we focus on what we can't do, what we're not good at, what we're not skilled at, and things like that. But then, equally, just being kind to other people goes it goes right to that heart of emotional intelligence. That means that once people feel that they're being treated with kindness and understanding, and they're and they're psychologically safe, they can give you the best of what they're able to do. So I think that that's a hugely underrated virtue and maybe doesn't always appear to correlate with, say, some of these alpha environments or these incredibly macho uh, things. But it's something that I've learned that the best environments do uh, do put a real store uh, around kindness. Nice. Okay. And now a book or, or an author or someone that has influenced, besides your dad, has influenced you to yeah. come to writing all these very influential books? who Who's someone that you could reference yeah. for the two of us to go out and look for or look at? Yeah, um, sometimes I'm asked in terms of the best book uh, or the best sports book uh, I've ever read, and uh, I always point people in the direction of um, a book that a boxing writer called Thomas Hauser wrote. Oh, yeah. um, it, so it was called The Life and Times of Muhammad Ali, and... Um, it was a brilliant book. So he wrote it at the start of the 1990s when Ali was still in relatively good health. But what the idea behind it was, was brilliant. So Ali basically phoned up everybody that, he, that, he'd, he, that he'd fought, that he'd worked with, things like that, and said to them, give this guy uh, the unvarnished truth, your unvarnished truth. So he basically opened the door. So what Thomas Hauser does is he goes and interviews Say, for example, the first fight with Joe Frazier. He goes and interviews Joe Frazier, and then he goes and interviews the fight referee. Then he interviews Ali. So in the book, you get literally a 360-degree version of the fights. You'll have Joe Frazier telling you about um, what he was thinking and what he said to Ali in the ring. And you'll have the referee going, oh, yeah, I heard him say that, and this is what I thought. And then you'll get Ali saying, and this is the impact that it had on me. And I just think it, it almost is, is the watermark for, for sports writing because it sort of gives you literally that 360 perspective on some of the, uh, some of the most seminal moments uh, in sporting history. And I've often thought that if I was an athlete or if I was working with an athlete, I'd say to them, just wait till the end of your career and then almost do something similar to that because it must be illuminating for the athlete as well as for the reader to be able to have an understanding of what was going on and and, and it provides some greater context than just sharing your own narrative. But I remember reading it when it must have been 1990 when it came out and just being blown away by the concept of it. So, uh, yeah, that, so 
I was lucky enough, I, um, I did a couple of boxing biographies years later, so on Marvin Hagler and Thomas Hearns and Sugar Ray Robinson. Mm. And that, uh, and the reason I mentioned the Thomas Hauser book as well is because I realised how difficult it is to write as well as what he does. You know, actually trying to do it myself gave me an appreciation even more so of just of, uh, of just what a seminal work it is. Yeah. So... Me and David here and Connor as well that works with us at Sleepy Performer Pete. We were thinking of looking into writing a book, um, but I just had a question for someone yeah. who's obviously written a lot and a lot of successful ones. Is it true it's like getting a tattoo that once you get one, you can't stop then? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can see that. I can see that it becomes it becomes addictive. So my wife says to me that um, she says that I'm a secret geek. <laughs> so, so I can disguise it quite well, and if you met me, you might not know it. But I, I, I I'm, like, I'm just a bookworm. I, I, I love doing it. I love sort of. I've got that innate curiosity. So, your conference yesterday sounds uh, sounds right up my street. <laughs> I'd say I'll give you two pieces of advice that 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 when people tell me they want to write a book, yeah. and, I'll, and I'll I'll give you two pieces of advice based on mistakes that it took me a while to learn that I wish somebody would have told me. The first one is um, your first draft will be rubbish. Yeah. So so just get that into your head that there's a screenwriter called Nancy Bird that talks about the uh, a concept called the shitty first draft. <laughs> and the idea is that in your head, so if you read books, you're seeing the finishing products and you're thinking, oh, I could do that. But your first version will not be the finished product, so it will be rubbish. And that's the bit where a lot of people do it and then go, oh, I can't do it. When the reality is, no, no, you can. It's just the first step on the way of doing it. The second point that I learned was get somebody that will give you um, some unvarnished feedback. And what I mean by that is that if you share it with people that are close to you, they love you, so they want you, and and you know, and they don't want to hurt you, so they'll say to you, "Oh, it's really good," and that's actually not that useful. You need somebody that will critique it properly. I remember when I did my first one, Liquid Thinking, I was on a flight and I gave it to my wife, and uh, we're flying for about five hours, and she said, "Just let me read it. Don't be inter- interrupting me. Just let me read it." And so all the way through the flight, I'm sort of like looking at her, and she's scribbling and making notes and looking confused and things like that and then when we'd landed I said what do you think of it and she said not sure how to tell you what I want to tell you <laughs> I said well, just tell me it's fine and she went she said I know what you're capable of and that's not it and I was like what and she was like <laughs> and, it, and it was a really lovely way that she did give me the feedback because she went that isn't what I think you could do that's not your best version and I was really sort of defensive at first like well how can you not understand that idea and this is what I was trying to explain there and then my rule was that I gave, I always give myself 24 hours, let the feedback settle in, get people that will give you feedback, constructive feedback, not just tell you it's good because they don't want to hurt you. Those two things are invaluable. Brilliant. I think it's only fitting that we, we've come right the way back to liquid thinking. And if, if we're going to get you over to Dublin someday, Damon, and you know, you, you're having to read our first draft, what what's the drink, yeah. what's the drink you're having in your hand? Is it stout? Is it liquor? Is it lager? What is it? I'm not a big drinker, um, so I, uh, if I'm in Ireland, um, I'll have a pint of Guinness with you. So uh, <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll I'll be empathetic and respectful of uh, of my environment. So I'll have one pint of Guinness <laughs> before I keel over. <laughs> Damon, 
Thank you very much for coming on to the podcast. I myself and Kieran really enjoyed it. We we learned a lot from you. We we look up to you. We think your books are fantastic, and we're wishing you all the best going forward. And hope we meet either in Manchester or here in Dublin. Stay in touch. Well, I'd love to do that. Yeah, and 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 you know, and likewise, I've loved it. I mean, thanks for asking such uh, such really incisive questions, and then giving the space um, to allow me to uh, to think through a, a response, but. It's a real honour to be on the podcast because I know how hard you guys work at it and the quality that you churn out. So thank you for having me on.